Tired of asking why? Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast, where we are answering life's most difficult questions. Now, here's your host, Teresa Blaze. Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast. My name is Teresa Blaze, and today I got a really special guest, but we'll get to him in a second. But first, I just want to announce... Guys, uh, we've got a really cool Facebook group. People are in there and they're talking and they're conversating and, and, uh, we're just dealing with life, we're just doing life together. You can find that at unresolved.life forward slash group. And with that, let's get on with it, shall we? Today, I've got a really cool guy. His name is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. And, I, I, you know, I just happened to run across him, and I thought, you know what, he would be a good one to come on the show. He's actually written a book uh, that deals with the question of has America's church been a failure? And, and Pastor, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. Can you can you tell us the title of the book and kind of give us a brief synopsis of what it's about? Yeah, sure. So the book is called Has American Christianity Failed? Uh, and I suppose to, to answer that question, I've got to de- define two things. What is American Christianity and what does failure mean? We know that the success of the church is not about numbers or popularity or success, but rather about faithfulness to the Lord's word. So the question is, has the church been faithful to the Lord's word? And in some ways it has. In some major ways it hasn't. And I, I identified four major theological trends of Jesus for sinners, his death, his death and resurrection in our place. And so um, – those four themes I identify as, as revivalism, mysticism, pietism, and enthusiasm. If people are interested in that sort of stuff, it's kind of practical theological stuff. Uh, it's a pretty good um, it's a pretty good place to start or to add to your library and take a look at. Before we kind of get into the main topic, there's something that happened in the news, and I'm sure everybody's heard about it. About it. If you haven't, you might want to. And, Pastor, I don't know if you were aware, but apparently. Apparently, the Pope came out with a wonderful bit of news. Yeah, according to him, apparently there is no hell. I I heard something about this, uh, but I didn't hear what the Pope said. Do you have the quote? I'm sure it was a doozy because this Pope seems kind of making things that are very clear in the Bible uh, very confusing to the people listening to him. He's he's kind of an expert at that. Um, but I didn't see I while I heard the news, I didn't see the quotation that he uh, that he gave. Well, I read something in Fox News where he ba- where he said that people who die without Christ and, and die in their sin do not go to hell. They simply cease to exist. Hell is a difficult doctrine. I mean, it's why the Bible has to teach us this stuff, because we wouldn't come up with the truth of reality, of ourselves, of God. We wouldn't come up with it on our own. So the Bible has to teach us things, and the Bible often teaches us very difficult truths, and hell is one of them, that we are so bad. That we deserve God's eternal wrath, and we can't think of ourselves as that bad. In fact, in, in some ways, I think it's a gift of God that we don't see ourselves with the full depth of our own sinfulness. The Lord has to teach us the depth of our sin, because if we knew that, if we felt, if we tasted the profundity, the depth of our own wretched sinfulness, then we would, you know, we would want to torture ourselves forever. So the Lord hides hides it from us, but he reveals it to us in the scripture that everyone has fallen short of the glory of God, that we're the enemies of God, that we are born, Ephesians 2, that we're born children of wrath. Now, that that's the key phrase there, that according to our, our natural birth from the sin that we've inherited from Adam, we deserve God's wrath. That That's a hard one to swallow right there. 
But we have, you have to start there because if you don't have that doctrine, then nothing else in the Bible makes sense. I mean, why does Jesus, forsaken by God, stricken and smitten by God on the cross, if we weren't that bad? I mean, the severity of the suffering of Jesus show us the severity of what we deserve. Why would God have to go through such extreme measures to, to, uh, uh, to satisfy his own anger if his anger is not that angry? So we got to start with the doctrine of original sin and uh, the the doctrine of our complete fall, or else none of the rest of the scriptures makes any sense at all. Very, very true. I mean, so what do you say to those that go, oh, come on, why would a loving God send someone to hell? Give me, give me a break. If he's so loving, why would he send someone? It's not like God has, has shown us an unwillingness to rescue people from hell. I mean, he sends his son. His only begotten son, whom he loves, through his own wrath, through the ringer of being forsaken, so that we wouldn't have to go to hell. So it's not like the Lord hasn't done anything to rescue and deliver us from hell. He's, he's, he's done everything to do it, so that the Lord is willing to suffer his own wrath in order to rescue us. And so the question turns around and say, well, why would you refuse that great gift? But, but here, you know, it, there's probably a handful of of ways to to come to this question. I mean, one is the authority of the Bible. Does the Bible teach hell? And the answer is yes. The Bible clearly teaches it. In fact, more than the prophets and the apostles, our Lord Jesus himself probably says more about hell than than the rest of the scriptures. So we see it in the Gospels. I mean, Luke 16 and Matthew 8, uh, Matthew 10, Matthew 25, uh, all over the Gospels, Mark 9, Jesus is talking about the outer darkness where the fires will never be quenched and where the gnashing of teeth is, it goes on forever. I mean, it's, it's in the mouth of Jesus that we learn about the severity of our own fall. The Lord reveals to us the depth of our own sin at the same place that he reveals to us the height of his own love. In other words, when we want to see how bad we really are, we can't even look at ourselves. We're like, um, we're blinded to our own sinfulness. It has to be revealed to us. But we see it on the cross. And when we see Jesus being spit upon and rejected and cursed and beaten, when we see Jesus hanging between heaven and earth for three hours in darkness, yelling, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And knowing that he is being stricken and smitten by God. When we see that, we see what we deserve. We see what should be ours. We see the wrath of God that should fall upon us as, as God's enemies and because of our sin. And yet at the same precise time that he reveals to us what we deserve. He also reveals to us uh, how he wants to bless us and, and, and serve us, how much he loves us, that he is suffering all of those things in my place. So, so that the revelation of God's wrath and the revelation of God's love are bound up together in the cross so that we would know them together, so that we would know what we deserve, but we would know that we're not getting what we deserve. Instead, we're getting the blessings of eternal life in Christ. To me, that's that's huge. I mean, you read Isaiah 53, uh, well, end of 52, beginning of 53, and you and you see exactly what he went through, and I'm just amazed by it. But I wanted to kind of cover that because that had actually come out just recently in the news, and you know it's still going on today. And I thought, you know, that would be a good place to start. Yeah, sure. And it's a it reminds us too that there's. You know, the difference between the Catholic Church and the, the churches that have, have have the inheritance of the Reformation, Lutheran churches, Protestant churches, is that we get our authority not from the church or from a particular person, but rather from the scriptures. So 
So the Catholic Church has always said that they have a teaching authority that the Pope can make doctrine. And so, you know, this happens in every generation that the Catholic Church will come up with something that stands against the words of the Scripture. That's that's what the, the Catholic Church does. So it's just this is just the most recent in a, in a history of divergences from what the Bible says. So let's let's move on and let's let's cover the, the main topic that I wanted to bring up with you. When you look at today's people, or, or you look at society today, and you see things happening like evil and, and, and school shootings, and just recently, in fact, just yesterday, someone went in and shot up uh, the Google complex. My question to that is, the Bible says that we all have a conscience, but if that's true then how in the world can you explain evil if we're supposed to have a conscience? It's precisely because there's evil is why the Lord gives us a conscience, so that we can make a judgment between what's good and, and what's evil. So the best definition of the conscience that we have in the Bible, I think, comes from Romans 2, where Paul writes about the unbeliever, the pagan, and they have a conscience that either accuses or excuses them. So the conscience is there accusing saying, hey, what you did was wrong, or excusing, hey, what you did was fine. And so the conscience sits there, and so it, and it watches the things that we think, the things that we do, the things that we say. It, In fact, it watches other people, the things that they do, the things that they say, and it makes a judgment. That's good or that's bad. But we know that the conscience, as it sits there and makes judgments, that the conscience can make mistakes. And this is so important for us to recognize. I like the picture, one of the, I have three pictures that I like to use to explain the conscience. And maybe we can talk about all three of them. A baseball umpire and a window and a courtroom. But the, the most basic is the picture of the home plate umpire who sits behind the catcher. And when the pitch comes in, the umpire is going to say, that's a ball or that's a strike. It's going to make a judgment on if the pitch was good or if it was bad. So our conscience sits there and says, that thing that you did, that was good. That thing that you did, that was bad. But just like a home plate umpire, the conscience can make a mistake. The conscience can say that something was good when it was bad. It can say that something was evil when it was good. It can get confused. It can be seared. It can be disoriented. Uh, it can be broken in four or five different ways. And so the conscience can make mistakes. So we always have to, while we want to follow the conscience, we always have to be careful that our conscience conforms to the word of god and isn't ruling on its own what do you say to the person that says hey okay i can see that i have a conscience but i don't need the bible and i don't i certainly don't need god i have a moral compass of my own and i know what's good and what's wrong yeah that's how most people are we are by nature justifying ourselves i remember i, just, I mean, so imagine this conversation which any of us could have with many of our friends say there's a couple they grew up in the church they learn the scripture for whatever reason. They've strayed from that. They and they, you know, they've loved each other. So now they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to move in together. We're going to live together. We're not married, but we're going to act like we're husband and wife. And and you could ask them and say, hey, do you remember when you first moved in together and you felt bad about it? You did. You thought maybe we're not doing the right thing here. And they'll say, yeah, yeah, I remember that. And you say, do you feel bad about it now? And they'll say, oh, no, no. Now it feels just how things are supposed to be. And we can say to that person, well, you've broken your conscience. You've managed by repetitive sin to harden your conscience. Or Paul talks about this in Philippians. He says their conscience 
has been seared with a hot iron. So you've seared your conscience. So like a scar on your hand or somewhere on your body that doesn't feel pain, your conscience is not feeling the pain that it should feel. So you have to go back to the scriptures. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery, that uh, let the marriage bed be kept undefiled. So if, a, if you move in together and act like you're married, when you're not married, you're breaking God's commandment. And you have to trust your con- you've made your conscience not trustworthy. So you have to trust God's word in the meantime, while your conscience has to heal itself. So it feels the pain of your own sin. Now, wait a minute. When you're talking about marriage, there is such a thing as common law marriage, right, Pastor? <laughs> well, I mean, I suppose. Uh, but there's a, if if someone says, well, we're married common law, then you want to say, well, why not be married by normal law? You know, why not stand before God and the church and why not stand before the judge and declare uh, your promises and your oaths? In other words, what's holding you back from doing that? The question then becomes, why do I need the church if I already love the person and I'm already married? Yeah, you don't need the church to get married. That's, I mean, the church recognizes, say, there's two Buddhists or two Hindus, and they go to the court and they get married. We say, no, that's a valid marriage, even in the eyes of God, uh, because marriage is its own estate. So it's true that you don't need the church. Of course, the Christian would want their marriage to be blessed so that they don't just have matrimony. They have holy matrimony. That means marriage according to God's word and blessed by God's word and prayer. But we recognize that matrimony doesn't have to be holy matrimony for it to be legitimate. And the, and the pagans who are not married in the church are not committing adultery. But there's a way that the world even wants to recognize the covenant of marriage, the promise of marriage, to be a public covenant. This is not a private thing. People are always wanting the things that should be public to be private and things that are private to be public. And one of the things that is public is marriage, is a man and a woman giving themselves to each other for the purpose of blessing, serving each other, having and raising children and becoming the bedrock of, of the city, of the foundation, of the society. And that is a, that is a public matter, not a private matter. And it's good. It's, it's one of the things to think about when it comes to marriage is to say, what's going to give me a good conscience? Is it going to give me a good conscience to go and, and sleep with that stranger? to act married to the person that I'm not married to? Is that going to give me a good conscience? And the answer is no. Marriage, then it becomes a protection to the conscience so that I know that God has given me this person, my spouse, my wife, and, and, and God has given me to her and her to me, and that he loves that. So that now what was a sin before we were married becomes a good work after we were married. When husband and wife lie down together, that's, that's a good and blessed work in the eyes of God, and it gives us a good conscience. What you're talking about is something that, I mean, in this day and age, you look on um, social media, you look online, and you see you see a whole bunch of things that, you know, just smack in the face of, of, of what we're talking about here. So today you're talking about something that seems a little bit antiquated, don't you think? I, yeah, I know. It's amazing, to, but it's, it shouldn't surprise us. But it is an amazing sort of thing that the people who should be married don't want to be married, and the people who can't be married do want to be married. It's like the world is on its head, right? So you have a man and a woman who should be married to one another. They should be committed to one another for life. They should be having children in the bonds of wedlock and raising a family and having a home together. And they say, no, no, we don't want to do that. We want, we don't want to be bound to one another. We want to be free to come and go in and out of this relationship as we please and so forth. So we don't want to be married. And then you have people who, who should not be married 
uh, two men or two women or whatever, and they say, no, no, we want to have this thing called marriage. And they usurp that from its right place in the world and, and try to take a hold of it on its own. So you're right. I mean, the uh, the world is upside down in this way. And, and there's so many casualties when the world turns upside down like this. I mean, there's casualties where children are being raised without without parents uh, or without um, parents that are married to one another, that love has been redefined as, I mean, we don't want to be careful in the way that we want to talk about this in a chaste sort of way, but, but we've defined love in a way that it's bound up to sexuality. I mean, that's maybe one of the worst casualties. People say, say you have two men and they say, well, we love each other and so we want to be married. And, and I say, well, of course you should love one another. I mean, that's what the scripture says. We should love our neighbors ourselves. Two men loving each other, this is what we used to call friendship. But the world is so upside down that that, that kind of love is hardly even understandable anymore. You have to have this sort of overt sexuality bound up to love. It turns our humanity into a into a sort of a, a beastliness. That instead of, of seeking love and friendship, instead of seeking to serve God and the neighbor, we're seeking ourselves and our own pleasure, uh, the, the kind of moment of, of intimate pleasure. And that becomes our God. And if you ever try to say to someone, hey, you can't experience that sort of ecstasy of intimacy with that thing or that person or that whatever, you become the great enemy of humanity nowadays. By, by saying the most basic human thing, you become the enemy of humanity. You know, we, we are on our head in this way. And the result is a shredded conscience. So to come back to the conscience on this, St. Paul says that every other sin a person commits, they commit outside the body. But sexual immorality, they commit inside the body. So that our sexuality is bound up to our conscience, to our soul, to our everything. The Lord intended that the act of marriage, the act of intimacy would bind husband and wife together. And so there's a binding that takes place when the two become one flesh. And when we go and treat that casually, like St. Paul's talking about, if a Christian goes and lays down with a prostitute, you, you start to tear to shreds your own conscience. And I think this is one of the one of the things that the church needs to recognize is that as we deal with people in the world who have just participated in the lies of the world and have chased after their own pleasure – uh, outside of the gift of marriage or chased after a distorted picture of marriage, we're dealing with people who have consciences that are shredded. I mean, they're just absolutely destroyed. It doesn't know what's good or what's bad, what's whole or what's clean. They, people feel like they're like they're just um, unholy and unfit for God's goodness. And so we have to come along to the people who have been destroyed by the sexual revolution and say, the Lord has for you cleansing and wholeness and love the Lord says, what I've called clean, don't call unclean. Jesus comes and says, look, I love you. I cover you with my blood. I forgive you of all of your sins. But you have to recognize that these things are sins and then know that the Lord is not holding them against you. But that's exactly why Jesus died. And a good conscience comes from that. Let's say someone is listening and they say, well, that's great. I'm glad you can talk to others like that, but I'm, I'm a mess. You know, I, I've done half the stuff you're talking about. Maybe they're bound up in uh, uh, um, a homosexual relationship, or maybe they uh, sl uh, slept with someone outside of marriage. I mean, and, and, and let's say, you know, that they're in that place where they're just like, I, God, I can't come to God. Uh, and I, This might be a little bit bold, but I think that most... 
people who call themselves atheists or agnostics are driven to that point because of the destroyed conscience from sexual immorality. People say, hey, I want to be an atheist because it makes it easier to sleep with my girlfriend or, or whatever. Now, we have a cl very clear word to speak to them and examples of the scripture. Uh, Paul says it to the Corinthians, he says he talks about sexual immorality. He talks about homosexuality. The Greeks had different words for homosexuality. So the different sides of the relationship, the the giver and the receiver, they had different words for that. And, and Paul uses both of those words. And he says, such were some of you, but you've been washed and you've been cleansed. Paul, uh, uh, Jesus finds as one of his chief followers, Mary Magdalene, the first person to see the resurrected Jesus, who was a woman, probably a prostitute, who had seven demons. And Jesus uh, grabs a hold of her and says, look, uh, you, uh, you, are, you do not belong to the darkness anymore. You now belong to the light. You belong to me. And so the Lord takes us up and in the midst of all of our sins, including sexual sins and sins against the sixth commandment, sins against marriage, the Lord takes us up and he cleanses us and he forgives us and he washes us and he makes us clean and he dresses us in the white robes of his righteousness. And he looks at us and he says, you are whole. You are mine. You belong to me. In fact, I can speak even more clearly. Jesus says on the day of Easter. He appears to his disciples and he breathes on them and he says that he gives this promise. Whoever sins you forgive, I forgive. And so Jesus wants the church to say this to all sinners who feel the pain of their sin in the conscience. I forgive you. That's the promise that today, right in the name of Jesus, I forgive you all of your sins. Your sins are forgiven. They're forgotten. They're thrown into the sea of forgetfulness that the Lord has redemption and mercy and you you cannot outsin Jesus. No matter how bad of a sinner we are, we cannot sin. We cannot be better sinners than Jesus is at being a savior. We just can't do it. So that the magnitude of our sins, though they be legion, are nothing compared to the height and depth of the love of Jesus for sinners. By that statement, you're saying there's even someone who maybe even committed murder or, or you know, took someone else's life. Are you saying that even someone like that, someone as messed up as that, that could be forgiven? Yes, and the and the Bible's given us example after example of this. I mean, King David was a murderer, and he prays Psalm fifty one, "Create in me a clean heart, O God," and the Lord restores him from from cold blooded murder, from adultery, from lying, from abandoning everything that God had given him. Moses himself was a murderer, and God called him to be uh, the deliverer of the people, the great prophet of Israel, Saint Paul had the blood of the Christians on his hands. He was trying to destroy the church, and the Lord called him from his murderous ways, even though he says chief of sinners, that he's the chief of sinners, that the Lord has had mercy on him. You cannot, you cannot out-sin the love of Jesus. It's just, it's, it's just impossible. I mean, just imagine if Jesus came to die for liars, but not for adulterers, or for adulterers, but not for murderers, or for murderers, but not for blasphemers, or for blasphemers, but not for idolaters. He would not be the savior of the world. He would just be savior for the small part of the world that's not that bad. No, Jesus, uh, there's a great line from Luther, and he says, Christ came for sinners. Jesus himself says it. He says, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. Those who are well don't need a doctor, only the sick. So if you're sick, if you're a sinner, then you are the target of Jesus. You are the person that he's coming after. And even though the, the devil wants us to stay away from church because we say there's the holy people in church and the sinners are out here. No, the, the reason we go to church is precisely because we are sinners that need this Jesus. I mean, we cannot save ourselves.
So we start church. In the, I'm a Lutheran pastor. We start every single service with a confession of sins. We say, I, a poor, miserable sinner, that I've deserved God's temporal and eternal wrath. And we beg for the Lord's mercy, and then we hear it, that he, that Jesus forgives sinners. That's why we come to church. Not because we're sinless, but because we need the Lord's forgiveness for all of our sins. I think that is just a wonderful word for someone that may be listening today, you know. You know, to kind of give you a, 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 an idea, you know, Pastor, I I walked with God for about oh, 10 years. And then I um, ended up walking away for about five due to losing my mom and losing my eyesight in the span of one week. <laughs> so... I, I totally can get where where you hear something like that and you go, but God can still forgive that. And that that to me is just, uh, I mean, to me, it, it, it is massive. It is not something that you can just sit there and explain easily because people kind of go, but I don't get it. How can, how, how can a God love us so much? Even I look at scripture and I read it and I still am like, Lord, I don't get you. Uh, there's a prayer that St. Paul prays for the saints of God in Ephesus, and he and he prays that God would give them the Holy Spirit so that they would know the love of Christ that is unknowable. Now imagine that that he so that the the love of Christ is is not knowable to us. It's too deep. It's too broad. It's too wide. It is too much for us even to understand apart from the scriptures. Jesus tells. Remember this parable: the sower. The sower goes out to sow the seed. And and some falls in the stone and some in the in the weeds and some falls on the path. And it seems like there's three kinds of things that are attacking our faith. One we are talking about is pleasure. And that's the weeds, the pleasures of this life that choke out faith. The other is the falls in the stones. And that's trouble. When the sun comes out, the root is not deep enough and faith withers. So you have two major things. The third is the devil himself, the, the path. But you have two major things that start to choke out our faith. So pleasure on one side, and that's a lot of the Sixth Commandment sins. And then suffering on the other side. That's what uh, you're talking about. Uh, how can God take all these things away from me? My eyesight, my mother, the things that I love. If God loves me, he should take care of He should take better care of me. Uh, and if he's not going to give me more gifts, not more blessings, or meet my expectations, then I'm not going to meet his. I'll run away from him. So it is interesting that all these things attack faith, but the answer that Jesus has to all of them, I mean, he doesn't defend himself. He, do, he doesn't say, oh, you're right, I shouldn't have been so mean as to hand you over to suffering. Or he doesn't say, oh, you're right, I should have given you more, more pleasure. He doesn't defend himself in these, in these ways. What he does do is he always points us back to the cross. There is the suffering of God in our place. There it is God's good pleasure to sacrifice his own son so that he can have us. And and all of our thoughts of our own suffering and all of our desires for our own pleasure all have to go to the cross, to go, go to the word of the cross and bow down and worship. Because there, God has shown what his pleasure is and what his willingness to suffer is so that he can say, I want you to be with me. To escape, to escape from eternal wrath and be with me forever. And I can't even imagine eternity apart from you. And I'm going to give everything so that that happens. And that's what we have in the word of the cross. Guys, I really hope that this has been um, helpful. I really hope that you walk away and you really give some thought to what is said here. I mean, 
We're talking about areas that a lot of people don't like to talk about, and that's, you know, that, that's the whole mission of Unresolved, answering life's most difficult questions. Well, to me, the most difficult question to answer is, well, where am I going to stay? You know, when this thing is said and done, where are my eternal reservations made? Because they're going to be made somewhere. I know, I know for me, I know where I'm going, and I know what I believe, but, you know, a, a lot of people, a lot of people can, cannot say that say that so pastor let's say someone can't say that they they can't say i've got my eternal reservations made and you know how, how do i take advantage of what christ did yeah well that's that's exactly right the people on pentecost asked peter that he preached this great sermon and they say what must we do to be saved and peter basically says look nothing you can't do anything to be saved it's been done he says repent and be baptized in other words Believe the promise. I mean, you believe, if, dear, dear friend, so to speak to the people listening now, if you believe this, that Jesus died for sinners, that you're a sinner, you have it. You have that eternal life. And, and the Lord Jesus wants to pin it to you in the gift of baptism. So Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, and you'll receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and for your children, for everyone everywhere. So that if you have not been baptized, uh, then go and find a church and ask for this gift of baptism. In baptism, the Lord pins this promise to you so that you know that the, uh, that you are the object of the love of Jesus, that you are the target of his mercy, that you are the, the one for whom he died. And you can live in that confidence that, you, that just as John the Baptist preached, look, Jesus is the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you can say, hey, I'm part of the world and I've got sin. So Jesus is my Lamb who takes away my sin. And if you believe it, you have it. Now, the devil attacks it. So the best thing to do is to make sure you have a church and a pastor. Uh, if you're in Aurora, come and see me. That'd be great. I'd love to, I'd love to meet you. Uh, but to find a church around, I, I would uh, recommend to you the, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, where the pastors have promised to teach the Bible and, and so forth. But find a pastor who teaches the scriptures and let them tell this to you every single week that Jesus died for you. If, one of the problems of American Christianity is we think that the gospel is only for the people outside of the church. And now once we're Christian, that we need to hear the instructions on how to live. No, that's a lie. The, the, the Lord Jesus wants to tell us every single day that our sins are forgiven, every single day that he loves us and has mercy on us, every single day that his blood cleanses us from all our unworthiness, all our trespasses and all our sins. So go to a church where you hear that uh, and the Lord will use that preaching to bring you all the way through this life into life eternal. Well, Pastor, thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, God be praised. Thank you for having me. It's been a, a great honor. You've been listening to the Unresolved Life Podcast. To catch all our past shows, go to unresolved.life. That's unresolved.life.